Med Family is a show about a family journeying through medical school with kids and navigating married life. Tag along to see how we got here and where this journey is taking us. Hello, welcome to another week of our podcast, Med Family. I'm Eric Acker, the host with Karen. Hey, guys. Uh, we are recording, obviously, a couple of days late. Um, it's <laughs> been a bit, bit of a busy week. Um, I guess before we get into today's episode, just... Wanted to just say, if you wanted to follow us, ask questions, you can message us on Instagram, MedFamilyMD. And uh, if you wanted to follow our podcast, all the major podcasting platforms is where we are found. Uh, we are obviously just an audio-only medium because I have a face for audio. Uh, and I'm not doing video editing. That's that's crazy talk. Uh, <laughs> too, much, too much to go on. So speaking of too much, uh, this week... We had uh, kind of a sizable amount of stuff going on, um, so we we had we were very lucky. We had the weekend off, we had Saturday, Sunday. Um, I think I went back into work on Monday, and then had my internal medicine. Uh, they call it the ITE exam. Um, honestly, I couldn't tell you what that stands for off the top of my head, but. It is a standardized exam that all internal medicine residents take every year, and it is, uh, it's, I think, administered through the ACP of American College of Physicians. We take it every year at about this time, and I guess they they grade it, they compile all the statistics and data, and then they kind of release like where you're at in the mix of physicians and residents and interns second years third years whatever whatever you're at they they basically put you in which percentile group you are and programs use it to kind of gauge how well they're doing and how well you're doing how well you're learning um as an intern the bar is pretty low (laughs) Uh, essentially um we were told don't study for it just take it and we'll see how it goes Uh, of course that's kind of a misnomer because the, the program then says like, but if you don't make it above the 30th percentile of all residents that took all, all first years that took this exam, then we're going to have an academic excellence plan for you. It's, doesn't, it's nothing that goes on your permanent record, but it is something that we do basically create this plan that you need to follow, you know, do the steps. And then I think the next year you retake the you take the exam again. Everyone takes it again, and if you haven't improved, then you might be uh, looking at probation or uh, something that actually might go on your record. <laughs> so it's a kind of a misnomer. Uh, they're like, just don't study for it, take it, don't worry about it. But it's like, you know, but uh, you do you do need to worry about it a little bit. Yeah. Well, and. Part of that might be, and I, I I don't know, I'm spitballing here, but there was a turnover in a lot of your staff before you guys were onboarded, and so you don't... Like, we, we don't have mix-up and... Yeah, you don't like have that. the study materials yet that you are are going to get. Yeah. So... I mean, that, that's part of it. I mean, that's our part of it. Our program says that, but also the ACP on their website says that. Oh. They, they say, don't study for this exam, <laughs> which is funny um <laughs> for for an entity that puts out um mix app and sells it to all the programs uh it's funny that they're like oh don't even bother studying for this the exam that we give you test prep stuff for it's fun. obviously the test prep stuff is for the actual boards not necessarily the ite but in either case <laughs> um talking to some of the second and third years they they say it gets easier each year and obviously they study more they do the mix app questions and whatnot so they they feel a little bit more prepared for it than me so the exam is um six blocks of questions that are 50 questions each so it it feels very much like step one step two <laughs> um you get a 10 minute break in between and on after the third block you get an hour break um, so we started at about eight thirty, nine o'clock, ended about five, five thirty. So nice full day of exam taking. 
And I will honestly say it definitely felt like an exam I did not study for. <laughs> you sit down. But to be fair, your fellow interns also felt like it was an yeah. exam they didn't study for. And you're for. slugging through a few blocks and you're just like, oh, this could go either way. Uh, some some of the jokes that were flying around were like, just sign me up for the academic excellence plan right now. Just, just you know, I'll just get that email. Let's just do this. Um, so it's, it's a struggle. And it, it's, you know, it's board level questions. It's uh, what's the next step in management of patients with these conditions? Can you diagnose this? Can you do... And like some are like varying degrees of ease. Um, and certainly different difficulties of like, I don't remember... Or I do, re- I recognize all this, but I don't remember the right answer to this. So um, hopefully as time goes on and experience in the program <laughs> and experience in internal medicine, I will get better. Um, so it's certainly something that I am nervous about. Uh, in about six weeks, I'll find out the results, <laughs> which is about the time where I'm hoping to sit for step three. So that's all Yeah, great. let's not look at those results until after you sit for <laughs> step three. I may not have a choice, let's be honest. Um, so that's one part of, I guess, our busyness. Um, and, of course, then we have, um, gosh, what it, so right after that exam on Tuesday, I, I was supposed to do a presentation for my admit team on Wednesday. So I stayed out late uh, at the school working on my presentation on congestive heart failure. Um, and it turns out on Wednesday we had a bit of a miscommunication with the seniors and the attending and so we didn't get to present yesterday and today we for whatever reason didn't present so um i was told i will be presenting sometime this weekend but that's fine i am done with my presentation so (laughs) i'm not going back into it i mean i'll I'll look it over obviously but uh, i don't think i need to drastically change my presentation i feel like it's acceptable uh, and, and we're not really great at it. It's, so this particular attending is very good at teaching, but she's not a core faculty. Um, what I mean by that is like there's, there are faculty members who are paid by the program and employed essentially by the program to teach. And this person is just taking on residence as part of her typical day-to-day job, but she's not a faculty member. So she's not, I don't think she's actually paid extra to see us. But she does take a lot of personal investment in making sure we learn. So she makes us uh, residents do presentations early in the morning and on different topics that she finds are very important. Obviously, congestive heart failure, very important. I think tomorrow, which I'm not actually going to be there for, tomorrow's my day off. Uh, hence why I'm staying up late to do this podcast. <laughs> uh, so tomorrow's presentation is on thromboembolisms um, by one of the psych residents who's on rotation with us. So, like, we cycle through, I think somebody had meningitis. Um, I, of course, had DKA a couple weeks ago. So, we rotate through a lot of different topics. Um, A lot of bread and butter, internal medicine-related topics that, um, I say bread and butter, and that's basically a nice way of saying, you're going to see these a lot. And these are things that you need to just be good at treating (sighs) because you're just going to see a ton of them. And if you see a ton of them, you got to be, you got, you, you can't be looking them up all the time. You should constantly look up things just in general because guidelines change. But, um, I guess knowing how to treat these right off the bat is, a is what the goal is on some of this stuff. So worked on the presentation Tuesday night, didn't have to present. I'm not going to present until this weekend. Um, just had kind of a lot of late nights. Uh, obviously we are now recording, joined by, uh, our, Lovely youngest daughter. Who, who refuses just, to go to sleep. <laughs> not not wanting to sleep. You might every now and then hear in the background making her <laughs> presence known, but she has decided that sleep is not not something that she desires at this time. <laughs> <laughs> She's at the body, my body, my head wants to go to sleep, but my body won't stop moving. Um, so that's exciting. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, and then Karen, you've been you've been dealing with some of these doctor's yeah. appointments and whatnot. Yeah. So um, Judah and Evie got their doctor's appointment today. Um, we made it through, <laughs> and I ended up getting food poisoning on Wednesday. I, it's it, it was the night you stayed late, so Wednesday. Oh. Um, that was when I started feeling bad, and then it really hit Tuesday. Thir- 
Yeah. Yes, because today is Thursday. The ITE was it the yeah today okay. is Thursday, so it really hit me hard on Wednesday. Um, <laughs> so um, I was feeling more normal by Wednesday evening, but we just gave it another evening so that I could feel like a actual human being while we did this. The corn dogs struck hard <laughs> and fast. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I get for making kids food for myself, right? Like, <laughs> I'll just do something quick and easy. Um, no. Learn that lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho. Uh, so, but I was, I was more, more myself this morning, so I was able to take the two, two kids to the doctor's office, which... Um, as prepared as you can be for a doctor's appointment, it didn't go as smoothly as I had hoped, but you know, that's what you get when you transfer offices. <laughs> so, um, we, oh, yeah, we had we... filled out all the paperwork to get all of their records transferred and they weren't. And I had anticipated this when we moved. Two weeks ago. Well, yeah. We, we, we did all the paperwork. We did all the ago. paperwork two weeks ago. And I had gotten all the paperwork to check in two weeks ago. So I had everything filled out. But before we had moved, I had been like, ah, I'm just going to get all of the shop records printed out just because. And I didn't bring them with me. And <laughs> since we didn't have any... Um, we didn't have the shop records. We didn't have the shop records with us. And they didn't. they failed to get our records from our previous... <sighs> pediatric office. So uh, it was kind of a interesting appointment and it took a very, very, very long time. So hopefully when we get the other three kids in, it will go smoother. Yes. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Bit of a, hopefully we don't have to make too many appointments. I know it's a bit of a process, getting the babysitter, getting everything lined up, yeah, going, coming back. <laughs> yeah, it uh, was very nice in Georgia. I mean, we had a couple babysitters and they were... Family family friends and friends of ours or yeah, and daughters of friends of fairly ours. Fairly inexpensive and here we have no community as of yet and um, so... Working on it. <laughs> yes, we're working on it, but... Um, it makes it a little bit difficult to find babysitters. We've had them cancel last minute. And um, so uh, we have a couple appointments next week. So we are hoping that uh, we can get those in. Yeah. Trying to trying to get all this stuff done. But um, yeah, we're, we're working through it. And hopefully we'll get a bit of community. It's one of those kind of important things when you have family to have a community that you can kind of lean on every now and then you can lean, they can lean on you um, and connect uh, in some ways and kind of feel more attached to the community. So we're, we're working on it. <laughs> um, but we, um, a couple of, I guess a couple of topics I wanted to talk about and we'll see how far we get because we don't want to stay a little too late since it is already late. Um, so a couple of topics I wanted to talk about was um, having talked to a few friends of mine who are finishing up um, their fourth year, getting ready for the match this cycle. Uh, we obviously the it was like the ERAS application goes live tomorrow. Tomorrow, um, but they don't go to the programs until later this month. So people I think are inputting their information and getting getting everything ready for the the match process. I honestly cannot say what I, I have not kept up on any of the the new changes in ERAS. I think my friend mentioned that uh, in years past, the Canadian match and the U.S. match, the Canadian match typically happened first. Um, so if you matched in Canada, you were with, immediately withdrawn from the U.S. match. Um, but I guess this year that timeline has changed and the Canadian match is after the U.S. match. Um so that was an interesting change, but um, besides that, like whether whether some programs are still uh, wanting slows, uh, whether signaling has changed in any sort of sense, my my still assessment of the signaling um, after having gone through all the hoops and writing out all the little mini essays, um, only one program off <laughs> offered me an interview that I signaled, 
and uh, it didn't feel like it was worth all the extra effort. I mean, you do it because you do it. You do everything on the EaseVaz application because um, you just want to increase your odds. <laughs> I mean, not doing something is like leaving cards on the table. Uh, you might as well just do everything. So uh, I, I can't really provide a whole lot of extra insight. Um, general suggestions, it's it's a tough grind time for fourth years. Like it, you're just getting to the end of med school, you're almost there. Um, so that's kind of all cool and exciting, but at the same time, uh, you may, maybe you don't feel motivated or maybe you, you know, like, oh, I'm just gonna whip out my ERAS application and just, I'm just gonna go through, blow through it, write, you know, a few sentences here and there and I'll be good. I really, really encourage you find somebody you trust to look it over and multiple people multiple, multiple people can look it over like read your essays do grammar edits uh, even use grammarly.com which i think is a free resource for you can put things in there and it will tell you like grammatically if you've messed up certain things i think they have a paid service that does a little bit extra but like even the bare minimum, having that that program read and like you miss a few periods here, or maybe you should do, you misspelled something. Like just doing that because like it's programs know this is important. Programs will treat this as important. So the slimmest of margins can rule you out. <laughs> and um, the ERAS application is essentially the barrier between you and an interview. And as my program director was recently lecturing on, the interview really, I mean, obviously the application makes a big deal, but the interview, once you get to the interview, the interview is what really makes a big deal. So like you need to get to the interview. <laughs> I mean, once you get to the, like once you get past the ERAS and you get a few interviews, then sure, you need, you just need to get, uh, you need to knock out the interview, no problem, but like you need to get to the interview because there's no match if there's no interview. Um, so double check everything grammatically, do rewrites, make, you know, make it perfect because you only want to do this once as an expensive endeavor. Just do it once. Don't do it twice because you messed up the first time. Um, it's, it's a, it's a process. It's hard. It's hard. I wouldn't want to do this again. And I know people who are doing it more than once, I know people who soaped and are uh, possibly reapplying into a different specialty. I know people who did transition year and they are having to reapply. Um, and I'm not saying anything's wrong with any of that stuff. Sometimes you need a transition year to kind of figure out what you actually want to do or that it helps get you established to where you want to get to. But generally speaking, you only want to do this once. So, um, uh, anything you wanted to add to that or no i i really i mean so we paid a f a person that was in their intern year to edit and to um look over it and then we had a couple other people look over it as well and i looked over eric's and they all offered differing opinions um but i think having those opinions helps to kind of Taylor Makey, and it does give you the ability to be like, okay, this is what this person is looking at. This is what this person is looking at. This is something I hadn't thought of before. Um, things like that. Or, so. or having people read it and then tell you what they thought, or like what the impression was. And like, if that's the impression you were going for, then great. If that's not, then maybe a few edits can, will fix that. Uh, Cause you, you're trying to make, especially like personal statements, like, you're trying to make some kind of impression like you you don't want to be too creative with the personal statement i've i've definitely heard complaints from program directors about how people get a little too creative with it um but you do want to make it somewhat interesting but you also have to know at the same time like sometimes that well just generally thinking this is the way for the program to get to know who you are and so you have to find a way to condense who you are into a few paragraphs and hopefully it's concise and to the point enough and interesting enough that they might look at that and go, okay, 
I might want to meet this person and chat with them. They might be seem interesting. And then now it's the, at that point, then it's your job to have a a great interview where you you prove to them that you were an interesting person that they want to spend <laughs> more time with. And I um, think they do. Before they interview you, they do read your personal statement because I feel like you got several questions along the lines of your personal statement. Oftentimes, yeah. There are some odd occasions um, where you'll be interviewed by somebody who um, literally just got asked to do interviews. Like they might have been like, oh, so-and-so is out sick today. We have like five interviews lined up. Would you mind sitting in and doing a few? And in those cases, they are like they are given your application, but they have may ha- may not have read it. So the, the, those are some kind of odd exceptions. Um, my, most of my experience seemed to kind of validate the idea that everyone who read my personal statement at the very least, um, I, like, like Karen said, I got asked questions. Um, and, I, and that's the truth about most of the EOS application is please don't put anything on the application that you are not willing to talk about or cannot talk about authoritatively. Uh, especially like research papers and because there's, there's sometimes a an urge to pad your resume with a bunch of crap uh, for lack of a better word where you might be like oh yeah I put my name on a few research papers and maybe I helped edit a few sections but I, I was really not involved in the research and then they ask you about it and you're like oh well I, I you know you don't really know anything about it and you maybe you say something stupid like oh I was just you know editing it like it's not very impressive um, when you can't talk about the topic authority. And I'll be honest, like there were times when I actually would ask questions because one of my earlier in the interview season, um, we were, one, one little piece of advice I was given was, Hey, look up the, the interviewers that you're going to have and, uh, find out what kind of research they've done. And then maybe ask them questions about their research. Some, sometimes they'll be very impressed that you've done that work and I tried that and I'll be honest like they were impressed that I had done (laughs) my due diligence but the responses that they gave were less than impressive um I I do think one of them actually did say something to the effect of like oh I think I just helped with a statistical analysis I don't actually know what the actual research was about and it's like okay like and as an applicant like that wasn't very impressive like I thought I was going to have an interesting conversation about some interesting research that they, they did and maybe get some insights from it, but I only got basically a, my name's on it because I did a little bit of work on it, but I don't know what the grand scope of the, the research was. So it's like, okay, well, <laughs> and that, that's my impression as an applicant. It's probably worse when it's the, you're the interviewer and you're asking the applicant and the applicant gives you some kind of dumb answer. Uh, yeah. Um, other suggestions I think we were given during our seminar was like when they ask you why our program, like give them like a genuine answer, but you know have have done some effort and not be like, you know, you're two hours from the beach and you're two hours from Charlotte and you're two hours from Raleigh. It's like great, you open the map app. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, that was one of our reasons why why North Carolina was on there because we're like it reminds us of home of Washington, where you are two hours from the beach and two hours from the mountains. But I mean, the other thing that stood out was they have the sim lab that were, that Eric is allowed to go in and do things with, which was something that set them apart from some other programs. Their emphasis on, on uh, point of care ultrasound, like that and procedures and a lot of that stuff was all, you know, but the, I only knew about that because I went digging through the program information and um, found as much as I could because you just find something that you like about the program or found something and then kind of make that the pivotal thing. I don't know. You can make it your own, obviously, but don't don't like read off like a list of things that look like you just read the Apple Maps, <laughs> you know, and uh, the what's what about you know St. Louis, Missouri, or whatever? Like, actually, have done have done a little bit of think, soul searching and like, why do you actually want to be here? And I, honestly, like as an applicant, sometimes like some of these programs was like, I just want to match. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll get a pretty good medical education, but I just want to. Ma- and it's hard because like as an IMG student, 
um, especially now I'm looking at some of my peers who are MDs and DOs from U.S. schools, like they didn't have the same process and they didn't go through the same struggles that we had, we do <laughs> as getting into these residencies. Like a lot of times they'll talk about how they, they dropped 20 applicants, uh, applications, you know, that's all they did, 20 applications and they got like 15 interviews and like for sure they were going to land something. It was like, I dropped 180 applications. I got 12 in it, like 10, I got 10 interviews. 10 interviews. Yeah. Like I got 10 interviews. Like that's not a good hit ratio, honestly, but that's the IMG life. You know, that's unfortunately, I think, obviously I think some people do better. Um, yeah. But. Cause like the, the family that matched in Colorado, they only applied to 70. And they got about the same. They got about the same number. Maybe one of, or two more, I think. Interviews. Uh, yeah. I, he also did more aways. He did. Yeah. Um, and so some of his, and I'm not trying to detract from his effort. Like he, he did multiple way rotations and he, I think he was really good about um, asking for an uh, interview advocating for himself. Yeah, and he would ask for interviews from uh, program directors while he was there, and he got you know interviewed in in programs that may not have otherwise given him an interview. But um, he, yeah, he, he did well for himself for you know good hit ratio. But when we had pretty similar um, backgrounds and from what I can gather we had pretty similar personal statements so <laughs> um, anywho <laughs> just a, another kind of interesting point that sometimes this process is uh, hard to predict uh, honestly uh, we're, so anyway that, that's a it's a it's a bit of a process but you again like I said you want to be Right now, it's just getting all the essays done and filling in all the CV information and making sure that it makes sense. It's something that you can actually talk about, that you're proud to talk about, and you're not leaving things off the CV that you really should have on there, and then you're not putting things on there that you really shouldn't have on there. Like, if you're applying into surgery and you put... Uh, or if you're applying <laughs> into like family medicine and you put like surgical society stuff on there, like you're, you're giving off vibes <laughs> that you might be doing backup stuff. Like you don't, you gotta be careful about how things you put on there are perceived. So have somebody look it over, especially somebody who's gone through the process before. It may not be me. I may not be a very good expert, but I'm sure you know um, upper class people who actually know what they're doing and can give you some honest feedback and then go back and spend time and make the edits. Uh, it, again, you only want to do this process once, so you might as well do it right the first time and put in all the effort. I mean, you've worked four years, four years of hard work as a med student. Like, it's just a little bit more effort and you, you, you'll be there. So <laughs> this is what we'll, this is what we, you know, this is everything you work for. So, um, that is the ERAS <laughs> part of the topic. Um, I did, I did want to talk a little bit about DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, hopefully not too boring. <laughs> um, I, so I did a presentation on this during my ad, uh, I'm still on admits and that still hasn't really changed as far as the flow. Wake up in the morning, do the admits, uh, get assigned to admit, go see the patient, you know, manage them until about four, hand them off, write my notes and something like in that order. Essentially, usually two to three admits per day or sometimes as low as one. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, this presentation is something I did and I don't know, this is definitely a common topic that I learned a little bit on eight South and eight South was more of the mechanics of like, hey, you have a patient with DKA, make sure you do this. Okay, great. I know to do this, then like basically once the patient's anion gap closes, um, give them their basal insulin, start feeding them, switch to uh, short-acting insulin, keep the insulin infusion running for one to two hours, then shut it off. And don't forget to shut off the D5, uh, <laughs> the D5W. Yeah, in, uh, infusion. So 
and then keep monitoring them and to make sure that they don't rebound back into um, DKA. So like that's stuff that you learn on 8South. And I think while that's uh, the mechanics are good, uh, sometimes it's good to also know the the underlying causes and a little bit more information about DKA. That's where um, on admits I definitely learned a lot more. You know, because you know on the floor you kind of get a patient who's been diagnosed with DKA, is being currently treated with DKA. So you're just your job at that point is just to kind of continue to manage them, possible monitor for other things that might have might be kind of being hidden by the DKA, and then. Once they're stabilized, discharge them. Uh, whereas on admits, you're getting a patient from the ED, and the ED might be like, well, we think this is DKA, and your job is to make sure it is, and then start the treatment. And then I think sometimes the hardest part is starting the treatment and doing it right, and there's definitely countervailing thoughts. And um, even, so I, I did this presentation presented it to my team uh, and even through all my looking I was thinking oh there's a pretty clear process on up to date uh, it, it seemed like if you follow the process you're in pretty good shape so uh, that, that kind of that might be the, the general idea but then we had a presentation today where our uh, program director talked about DKA <laughs> and provided a little bit more depth to it a little bit more insight and all I can think of was Huh, he's he's got some modifications to the, the treatment plan. They all make sense and they they all have merit to it, but again, this is another way to manage diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, so without further ado, uh diabetic ketoacidosis. Um I I remember this being a topic actually I think we presented on my internal medicine uh rotation in third year uh, with Dr. Lomboy. Mm. And Matt was with me. He presented half of it. I presented the other half. And I'm pretty sure I just put words on a PowerPoint slide and I read them. And I have no idea what I was talking about. Because when I first saw my DKA patient, I'm like, oh my goodness, this person's way sicker than I thought they would be. Like, <laughs> I just thought these people just had like really high glucose levels and needed to be managed better. Like, but no, these patients are pretty sick. And uh, if left to their own devices, they could die. So um, it is a pretty important uh, thing to know about and know how to treat. But the fun thing about DKA, uh, so I'll read the definition. So there's two different definitions I like to try to use. So there's one from NIH uh, Stat Pearls, uh, and it basically says part of the, a, DKA is a part of a spectrum of hyperglycemia, hyperglycemia, which blood glucose is greater than 250, arterial pH is less than 7.3, serum bicarbonate is less than 15 milliequivalents, and the presence of ketourea, uh, ketourea or keto, uh, ketoemia. So that's the NIH stat pearls. Seems pretty straightforward. Um, I have some asterisks in there because um, as we're kind of getting into, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not, very, it's, it's okay. It's, it's a good general, like for maybe second year medical student, third year medical student, that's a pretty good definition. Um, I'll read the Canadian, the diabetic uh, Canadian definition, and that is, there is no definitive criteria for diagnosis of DKA. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what, what do you do with that? <laughs> Um, so essentially, you're looking for a patient with diabetes, uh, and that's kind of tricky because sometimes the first time a patient comes in uh, in DKA is the first time they they are now realizing that they have diabetes, like especially kids, like if they're diabetic type ones. A lot of times, DKA is more common in diabetic uh, type ones, so that you have more autoimmune <laughs> diabetics. But oftentimes, it can be the first time they come in. Um, but typically the patient is diabetic um, and they have an elevated anion gap. So this is where the acidosis, but there's a you know, asterisk here. Well, the anion gap is elevated. That's kind of has to be there. And then urinary ketones. Those are the kind of the three things you kind of have to have. Um, urinary ketones are important or 
ketoguria, uh, keto, ketoemia. Um, often a lot of hospitals will have, uh, I think it's alpha beta hydroxybutyrate um, labs that you can do. That's kind of the more definitive test you can do, and that's elevated, then you know you got it. Um, I have some asterisks here because well, why, why, why did I not say blood glucose greater than 250? Well, because you can actually have DKA in patients with uh, uh, glycemic patients, so the normal glucose levels, glucose levels below 200, but they still have ketoguria and they still have elevated anion gap and diabetic patients. So, uh, so it's, and those are usually patients who have like on the SGLT2 inhibitors. These are new diabetic drugs that uh, are used. Also, um, interestingly enough, I'm doing a presentation on CHF. Also, part of the, now the new criteria or new guideline-directed medical therapy for congestive heart failure is the SGLT2s. <laughs> so, and there's even, so that's like, sorry, it's a little bit of a tangent here, but for congestive heart failure patients with reduced ejection fraction or uh, moderately reduced or uh, improved injection fraction, SGLT2s are part of now the standard of care. Um, for patients. And of course, you have to use a little bit of clinical guidance on that because you don't want to take a patient who is generally pretty low uh, hypoglycemic and then give them an SGLT2 and possibly have some complications. Um, usually not, I don't think. I think how they work, they don't generally push people into hypoglycemia. But in either case, that is uh, on there for as a 1A recommendation um, for patients with preserved ejection fraction, so ejection fraction of 55 greater percent on heart failure patients with diastolic dysfunction, diastolic dysfunction, sorry. Um, SGLT2 inhibitors are a 2A recommendation, I believe is what it says. Uh, so you can use it. It's just not, it, it's not recommended against, like they're not saying it's counter- it's but it, and it but it can provide some mortality benefits. So it's a side note there. <laughs> so you might see patients in DKA more and more often who also are on SGLT2 inhibitors who are making which is making the patient euglycemic. So something to keep in mind. Uh, <laughs> um, other things to kind of consider. Um, Generally, the causes of like DKA is the number one cause. The number one cause of a lot of medicine right now of why patients have exacerbations or why like uh, why why do patients have um, get into DKA? They they stop taking their medication. The number one reason why why a type one diabetic goes into DKA, they weren't taking the diabetic medication. Number one reason. There are others. There's infect serious infection, trauma, cardiovascular, pregnancy. Uh, <laughs> you can have a whole host. Anything that can stress the body can push a patient into DKA. Um, so it is important to not just assume that a patient has just stopped taking their medications and make sure you do a good workup and make sure you rule out other causes or so infections, UTI, especially women UTIs. Um, Sorry, sorry, women. Uh, <laughs> for whatever reason, UTIs are, are like, again, one of those bread and butter things of internal medicine. Female comes in, altered mental status, get a UA. Like, <laughs> um, I mean, it could be a million different things, but we get a UA. Um, for altered mental status, really? Mm -hmm. old, especially older women. Huh. Yeah, older women, for some reason, when they get a UTI, they can get altered. Um, I don't know if it's really well understood and they haven't really done a lot of research into it, but yeah, they can be a little altered, not like stroke altered, but like lethargic, um, altered is a very umbrella term. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, it's not yourself. Um, generally like lethargic weakness, sleepy, something like, you know, fatigued, um, incoherent, uncoordinated. The older, a lot of elderly women have this. That's something that is a concern when, when someone comes in with altered mental status of unknown origin and the CT head is negative, uh, which only rules out hemorrhagic stroke, just by the way. 
don't uh, don't take a CT of the head and just say I wrote out stroke. <laughs> so I have to ask, because now we got off topic, but yeah. I do have to ask. When I worked at the uh, long-term care pharmacy, almost all, almost everybody had like a multivitamin and calcium and all that stuff. But a lot of the women were prescribed the cranberry capsules. Do those actually work? No idea. Okay. Because <laughs> I've heard lots of research that the cranberry juice doesn't do squat. So I was just wondering if the actual cranberry... I have spent zero time looking into it. <laughs> I have seen what you were talking about. No idea if it works. So fair enough. Uh, I, I so a couple I guess things regarding that, especially when dealing with older patients. Just because, just because you can do a UA and you find, let's say, leukocyte esterase, white blood cell count, red blood cells, um, nitrates, doesn't mean the patient has. Well, they might have a they might have a urinary tract infection, but does not mean the patient needs to be treated with antibiotics. Symptomatic <laughs> um, UTI is what you treat. You don't treat bacteria in the urine because um, it. When, as you get older, it sounds like it becomes more common uh, that if you culture the urine, you're going to find bugs, and so you can't just be putting every patient on uh, antibiotics. Because a lot of times, it's just some bugs that isn't going to cause a problem. <laughs> and so, if it's not causing a problem, you don't need to treat it. So, treat the patient. Uh, treat this, yeah, patient, not the labs. Um, so, we've seen it a few times where, you know, the patient comes in, the U UA looks a little weird, but the patient's not really having any symptoms. So, no urgency, no fre increased frequency, no pain on urination, no suprapubic pain, no... Um, and this is going a little bit beyond, but no um, coastal vertebral angle pain, no groin pain, like none of that. Don't give them antibiotics just because the UA looks a little weird. Because um, you can kind of look at a lot of UAs and be like, ooh, I, I can convince myself that there's bacteria there. Um, because uh, it, it we're not the cleanest of individuals. I mean, and no one's particularly clean and... So like the, the catch may not be perfect. Um, the lab may not do the best of job. Treat the patient. If the UAs looks suspicious for UTI and the patient has symptoms of UTI, treat the UTI. If the patient has none of the above and has a UT, uh, UA that looks suspicious for UTI, you can convince yourself that way. But again, they're asymptomatic, don't treat it. Uh, <laughs> so that being said, I don't know, maybe cranberry juice is being given to patients who maybe like the like as a, a prophylactic or a prophylaxis? I don't know. I'm not really sure. I don't. I've done zero research on it. So sorry, not nope, can't answer fair. that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I guess getting back to TKA. Sorry. No, you're totally fine. Um, things to like signs and symptoms. So um, increased urination, uh, increased thirst and drinking, lots of fluids. Lethargy, lethargy, sorry. Uh, possible coma if it gets really bad, hypotension, tachycardia, shock, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and then um, deep, fast respirations is also called cousimal respirations. It's a fancy little word, but you'll, you'll see it. And when you see a DKA patient, they will be breathing fast and deep, fast and deep. And um, it does make some people nervous uh, because... Uh, fast breathing, uh, generally you can tire out. Like it's, it's a muscle. You have diaphragm and every, all those muscles part of respiration are working. And just like any muscle, if you use it long enough, it will fatigue. And you are sometimes worried that someone will fatigue and go into respiratory failure. And so some people get nervous and want to intubate these patients. And, uh, just be careful. Don't do, you know, if you don't have, I, my, my current intern mentality is if you don't have to intubate someone, don't intubate them. Um, that's what I'm going with until I get to critical care. I'll, I'll update you <laughs> if this changes, but, um, don't intubate. And this is also a topic that our program director talked about is that, um, 
And we'll get into a little bit more of the pathophysiology, so maybe I'll just jump into that before I get too far into the crucible breathing. Uh, so essentially the pathogenesis of this is, um, so let's say taking the number one cause of DKA, of not taking your medication, patients, uh, lack of insulin, insulin as we know, through our biochemistry, through our pathology, through our physiology, physiology. insulin basically is a key to the cell. Once insulin touches the cell and GLUT4 receptors, um, glucose enters the cell and uh, also as part of that process, uh, potassium, I'm, it's, I'm kind of spoiling a little bit of the story, but uh, potassium also enters the cell. And so glucose enters the cell, starts going down the glycolysis cycle, Krebs cycle, electron transport chain, and you got energy. Excess glucose gets shuffled off into glycogen. So insulin is the key. <laughs> if you have insulin, then that all works. Your cells get have metabolism. They use ATP for energy processes, and they can continue the met metabolism. No problem. Normal function. You stop taking your insulin in a patient who already isn't producing insulin or is not producing very much at all, or is very insulin resistant because you can have DKA in type two. It's not just exclusive to type one, but it's generally in type one. Um, but HHS or hyperosmol, um, uh, oh, I forgot. HHS uh, is a kind of a cousin to DKA. It's treated basically the same way and it's just kind of a more severe version of DKA in, in some ways. Uh, in any case, um, lack of insulin, glucose doesn't go into the cell. The cell's not getting glucose, glycogen uh, is getting broken down, and that's gonna be used for energy for the cell until it runs out. And it runs out maybe after a day or so, depending on your glycogen, glycogen stores. And then, <clears throat> so there's a couple factors going on here. So glycogen is being used up in your cells at first. Glucose is building up in your bloodstream outside of your cells, and glucose is kind of an osmotic factor. So like if, if it gets, once it gets to the kidney, once glucose, you know, you have high levels of glucose in your urine, it pulls more fluid, it's an osmotic effect. Uh, so it's hyperosmolar, so it pulls water into the tubules of your kidneys, which basically pulls all the water out of the person's body and they pee it off. And so you basically are dehydrating the person. And that's one, one issue is massive dehydration because all that water is being pushed off into the kidneys because the glucose is being dumped. Um, your body's trying to dump the excess glucose because now I think there's like co-transporters and this is where the SGLT2s come in handy. Uh, um, at about 300 is when those, those uh, receptors get maxed out and anything over 300 gets dumped uh, into the blood, into the kidney, uh, into the, the collecting ducts and the tubules, and water gets pulled in with them. And so you're having lots of dehydration. Cells, after they run out of glycogen energy storage, will start using fatty acid. And uh, fatty acid will break down, and one of the byproducts of fatty acid metabolism is keto, ketone acid, or keto acids. So you have ketones, beta-hydroxyglutarate, other things that basically build up. And those are acids. And acids are will raise uh, lower the pH in your bloodstream. And your body doesn't like <laughs> low pH. It might, likes to live in a very, very special area. Uh, and it regulates that in various different ways. You're, you've learned that in your physiology. <laughs> you've learned that in general. So when your body starts getting these acids, it's dehydrated, this is where you have your body trying to figure out how to get rid of acid. So the best way your body knows how to get rid of acid is it will breathe it off. Yeah, CO, uh, CO2 is an acid. So carbon dioxide, acid, body wants to just go ahead and breathe a whole bunch of it off because it's trying to compensate for the acidosis, the metabolic acidosis. So it creates a respiratory alkalosis-like environment. And this is where the Cusimol breathes. So in addition to the Kuzumol breathing, you also will have these electro, uh, electrolyte shifts because your cells are still excreting electrolytes all throughout this entire process and glucose is helpful in bringing 
certain electrolytes like potassium into your cells. So all like a lot of potassium that should be inside the cells are now out of your cells. And in addition to some of this, something to keep in mind is that you excrete potassium through your urine. And so you have a hyperdiuresis going on where you could be excreting a lot of potassium and your cells are getting rid of a lot of potassium. So you can end up with this serum hypopotassium or hypotolemia. Um, and that's, of course, a little, it could be a little dangerous depending on which cells are being exposed to hypotolemia. And uh, you, could, you could see some, theoretically, you could see some arrhythmias. It's generally not the biggest concern. Um, but if you're peeing, if there's a lot of hyperdiuresis, you could, when you first look at these patients, actually see a low potassium too, because you could have peed off a whole bunch of potassium. So anyway, so we're getting kind of more into the treatment level, but there's kind of different phases you need to think about when it comes to treating these patients. Um, so we talked about this hyperdiuresis, they're dehydrated. So we got to fluid resuscitate them. That's kind of a, a number one thing, hydration, get the fluids back up. They're acidotic. Well, they're acidotic because the cells are making ketones and keto acids. So you got to deal with that. And so that also means you got to stop. You got to get the cells to stop breaking down fatty acids. Um, so that's another step. And then, of course, you have the electrolyte issues. Uh, you need to correct it. And you need to be careful because, okay, we're going to deal with the fatty acids. How do you deal with the fatty acid metabolism? Well, you got to give them insulin so that they can start using the glucose. So you give them a bunch of insulin that, you know, let's say they have a, a 2.9 potassium in this bloodstream. Well, all that, all that potassium is going to go into the cell. You're going to go to zero pretty quick. And uh, that's not good. And that's going to cause arrhythmias. That's going to, that could, you can kill the patient doing that. So uh, generally the guidelines are no insulin unless the potassium is above 3.3. Um, you don't need to provide continue. Uh, I think generally some protocols, every hospital is going to have their own generally providing potassium replenishment, um, with fluids, uh, or D5, D50, depending on the corrected sodium levels, but, uh, you're doing it between the levels of 3.3 and 5.3. So you're always providing a certain baseline potassium to the patient between those levels above five. You don't need to give them potassium below, below 3.3. You cannot give insulin. You should not give insulin because you're going to cause them to go very hypokalemic and could cause problems. So you get a lab, it says 3.3, uh, less than 3.3, stop the insulin, replenish, recheck, restart insulin. Um, so essentially the, the treatment and management of DKA is, uh, it's kind of confusing because sometimes you think, okay, I'm, I'm just closing the anion gap and I am uh, managing this hyperglycemia. I mean, they have, you know, all oh, insulin's like 500. So I'm, I'm trying to get the insulin down. I mean, it's like glucose is 500. I'm trying to get the glucose down and I'm trying to close this anion gap. And so the anion gap is actually the most important thing because <laughs> the anion gap kind of tells you that the keto acids are not being produced anymore. <laughs> so you, you really want to get the anion gap down. Um, the bicarb is also something you use to kind of monitor because bicarb can go up and down based off of how many acids are there. It's kind of that acid base interaction acids kind of deplete your bases. <laughs> and so, uh, they neutralize each other anyway. So anyway, you are, you're not managing the hyperglycemia. You are in some extent, but you're more interested in managing the fatty acid metabolism. So insulin is the mainstay. This is a difficult thing to kind of start with. So um, my program coordinator, is, he presented with the idea that you really don't need to bolus insulin. So some protocols call for bolusing insulin. So you, you got the patient, you ran a few labs, you see the ketos, you got a diabetic, you got the hyperglycemia if it's there, and you have an anion gap. And uh, so you, you, you're pretty sure you got diabetic ketoacidosis. So 
and then you check the BNP or the basic metabolic panel, found the potassium, it's within above 3.3. So you, you feel like you're good to start and you already started hydration. And we'll touch on hydration in just a second because there's a whole lot to hydration. Um, so you want to start insulin. Some protocols say bolus 10 units of insulin um, right off the bat. My program director, and, and the up to date kind of has a different a few different takes. The one one thing is that you can bolus and then start them on a 0.1 per unit per kilogram rate of insulin, um, which you know uh, can be certain <laughs> depends on the weight of the patient, but um, can be a good amount uh, per I think it's per hour. And so, but if you do like 0.2 units per kilogram, they say don't you don't need a bolus. So just something to kind of keep in the back of your mind. Uh, <laughs> uh, bolusing is plus or minus, um, depends on your institution and your comfort level and where you, I don't think it really hurts the patient. And then the, of course there's another somewhat controversial, uh, not really controversial, but just like everyone practices a little bit differently. My program director, uh, is a proponent of go ahead and, you know, these are diabetic patients who are already on insulin, go ahead and give them the basal insulin dose, the long acting insulin that they take every day. Just give it to them. Um, so if they take 20 units nightly, just give them 20 units and you know start the insulin infusion. Uh, I, I don't disagree with the mentality, the, the rationale of it, but anyway, there's a different ways to do it. <laughs> but essentially, you want to start insulin. You want the guidelines say 0.1 units per kilogram. So calculate it out. Um, some programs or institutions will have titrated insulin infusions, where basically all these calculations are made for you by the computer and the nurses, all they have to do is cue one hour glucose checks and then they will adjust the titration according to the glucose checks. Uh, my program coordinator does make an interesting point uh, when he says we we're, treating the, we're treating the fatty acid metabolism, we're not treating the hypoglycemia because um, titration basically sounds more like you're treating the hypoglycemia because uh, you are. <laughs> you're using the, the glucose levels to adjust the insulin levels and you're kind of hoping that the, and they will, but you're kind of hoping that the anion gap will close as you do this. Um, so my program director is more of a proponent of you titrate them at a certain level or you get them at a certain level of insulin. Your, your goal is I think 50 to 60 millidecimals um, per hour of glucose. And it's, yeah, I think 40 to 60 drop. And if you don't achieve that, then doubling the amount of insulin you're giving until you can achieve that drop per the first in, per an hour and then maintain it. And then when you hit about 250, the insulin, the glucose level is at 250, then you need to switch on D5, um, uh, dextrose 5 infusion. So at this point, you are giving the patient sugar and you're giving them insulin. Uh, seems kind of intuitive, but again, the goal is not to deal with the hypoglycemia. The goal is to deal with the fatty acid metabolism. So you give them both until the anion gap closes. So it goes back to normal and then you can switch. And then that's, this is where you do this. Uh, some protocols will say, okay, go ahead and give them their basal dose. If they are willing to eat, give them some food. Um, shut off the D5, let the insulin infusion run for one to two hours longer, and then shut that off. Put them on sliding scale insulin, you're good to go. And monitor, make sure the gap doesn't reopen. That's pretty basic. <laughs> There's different protocols on this. Uh, again, if you've given that basal dose when the first patient showed up, you don't need to give it to them again uh, during the same day. Of course, you need to give it to them the next day. Um, and of course, then we haven't even talked about hydration <laughs> and some pitfalls in general. Um, so all the while you're doing all this, you're doing history and physicals. Patients with DKA generally do have abdominal pain on top of everything else, but you need to be aware that uh, they could have acute pancreatitis. They could have uh, diverticulitis. They could have other infections that you need to pay attention to. So as the DKA gets better, the abdominal pain should also get better. If it doesn't, you need to pay attention to see if there's something else going on. Infection, lactic acids, look, look for other. And if, again, if the anion gap is being very resistant, 
maybe we haven't treated the cause of the acidosis. Maybe there's lactic acidosis that's also going on. So got to look at that sort of stuff. Um, general workups, didn't always say UA, BMP, CBC, beta hydroxybutyrates, APGs, ECGs, and then calculating plasma osmolality, blah, blah, blah. Um, we're going long on a day that we said we we're going to go short. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, um, hydration is the last one. I really, I, don't, I, I know we're going long. I, I don't want to neglect the hydration because there's a lot, of, a lot to this. Um, we already talked about patients' hyperdiuresis due to the high glucose, so they're going to pee off a whole lot. They're going to be dehydrated, and they're also going to be acidotic. And so some of the stuff, you, how you deal with some of the acidosis is hydration, giving them a normal saline, bolus, a liters <laughs> is not a bad idea. Um, unfortunately, I have yet to find any source that says patient comes in with DKA, give them this much fluid. Everything is so much related to just like your experience, your assessment of the patient, and the com combination of the two, what you think the patient needs is for fluids. It's hard. Uh, <laughs> uh, obviously, you don't want to over over fluid resuscitate a patient because you have some pitfalls for that, which I will get into in a moment. And then, like, so for example, if you're just going to give them, like, you, oh, I just need to give them two liters, and I think two liters is going to hydrate them enough, you can probably just get away with normal saline. But if you're going to give, like, four or five plus liters, especially in the patients with HHS, again, it's treated very similarly, giving, like, high amount of diet, um, of liters of fluid, not a bad idea, but you give six liters of normal saline, your normal saline has a high amount of chloride ions in it as part of its hyper or the isotonic <laughs> solution. So you can accidentally push the patient into a hypochloritic acidosis, and that could also result in your anion gap or your bicarb not coming back and the anion gap not closing perfectly well. So sometimes it's good to bolus with lactated ringers. It tends to not have as much issue, but uh, then you have to do insulin infusions, uh, not insulin, the glucose. Um, you have to do fluid infusions with like D5, one half LR. If the patient's calculated, um, I'm trying to think, uh, sorry, it's, it's bit, I can hear the babies uh, <laughs> having an issue and I'm trying to, Trying to get through this quickly, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so, as far as the hydration goes, um, if the you want to do the corrected sodium, which is, uh, there's a calculation for it, look it up on MD Calc. Again, I'm trying to get through this relatively quick. Um, if the corrected sodium is less than 135, isotonic saline at a rate of 250 to 500 milliliters per hour. Easy enough. If the corrected sodium is high, greater than 135, um, you can do like half normal saline. So 40.45% um, saline. And so if, again, if you're doing some of this with, like let's say the sugar levels are below 250, then you're doing uh, D5, one half normal saline at this rate. And so you're giving them hydration, you're giving them the D5. So there's some things to kind of keep in mind with that. And other things to keep in mind, if you're replenishing potassium at the same time, potassium is osmotically, um, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, it adds a little bit to the tonicity of the stuff. So if you think you're giving one half normal saline with 20 mil equivalents of potassium chloride, well then you're actually probably giving really what the equivalent is of three-fourths normal saline. So yeah, just something to keep in mind, nothing that you really need to uh, change a lot of your plans on, just something to keep in the back of your mind. So again, 135 and less, go ahead and do normal, over 135 corrected sodium, one half. Um, and then you're just managing that fluid. Um, don't forget to shut it off once the patient starts eating. If the patient doesn't start eating, 
just keep them on the insulin infusion. Don't worry about it. Like give them the keep them on the D five, get them the insulin infusion until they're ready to eat. Like it's not not really the work end of the world. You, the worst thing is you just don't want them to rebound back into DKA. Um, sorry, Karen. <laughs> um, I think that's essentially it. Um, uh, something, I guess, to keep in mind as you're doing this fluid resuscitation, especially in younger patients and kids especially. I think kids are like 21 is the biggest thing to be worried about. Uh, DKA patients can come in with altered mental status. Not really well understood why, but let's just go with it. Very deep DKA patients can be coming with altered mental status. That should get better as the anion gap closes and as patient is lab tories get better. If the patient gets better and then suddenly gets a lot worse, um, so you could be not doing it, maybe the anion gap is reopening and that could be a problem. So check for that, make sure that the, everything is actually, the insulin infusion is actually going or the lines aren't, um, lines aren't clogged or something like that. So that's one thing, make sure the, the equipment is working. <laughs> Two, check for neurological status. If you are hydrating a, lot, a patient a lot, you can accidentally push this patient into a neurologic edema or cerebral edema, and can, that could, that's a medical emergency. And if you think that's what you did, mannitol. Give a mannitol, and um, hopefully we, we haven't caused too much damage. So something to kind of keep in mind as you're doing this, um, kind of little pitfalls there. Additionally, a controversial topic of pHs of less than 6.9, which is incredibly acidotic. Um, you're still gonna do hydration, you're still gonna do electrolytes, you're still gonna do insulin. There is some wisdom and thought process about giving bicarb. The longer a patient stays in acidosis, the longer the patient uses, um, uses fatty acid metabolism, the cells are getting damaged, things are getting damaged. So less than 6.9 on the pH scale, there is decent evidence, or there's not really any evidence one way or another People will use bicarb. Perfectly fine, do it. Uh, above 6.9, there's really no good evidence to support using bicarb. So that's when bicarb comes in handy. Um, I think <laughs> we are towards the end here. Uh, <laughs> um, so that's DKA in a nutshell. Um, I know I just kind of ran through the last little bit of it. I do want to try to try do some teaching as I do some of this podcast. So hopefully that was helpful. Uh, I would definitely recommend listening to like the Internet Book of Critical Care. They talk a lot about DKA they talk, and other resources. It's certainly something if you're interested in hospital medicine, DKA is definitely something you run across. So worth knowing. <laughs> worth knowing how to manage and why you're managing it um, because that will help you make good decisions. Anyway. Let you have a good night while we try to make our kids happy and then we will <laughs> ourselves try to go to sleep. Bye guys. <laughs>